0: Hi everyone, 15 episodes in and time for a switch up. Instead of the usual format with me asking the questions, I'll be giving the answers this week. I've invited Erica Jonson, Head of Communications at Six Park, to join us for this episode. Questions have come in from you, the listeners, via Facebook, Twitter, emails, and I think I've even got one from Instagram too. Thanks to everyone that took the time to shoot me a question. Before we begin, the usual disclosures. This podcast is for educational purposes only and doesn't qualify as financial advice and individuals may hold positions in the companies and securities discussed in this podcast. That's enough from me. With no further ado, let's get on with the episode.
1: You're listening to The Richards Report, where we will speak with investment experts from around the country. We will cut through the jargon to allow you to make more insightful investment decisions for your future. This is The Richards Report.
0: As mentioned in the introduction, I'm joined with Erica Jonson, Head of Communications at Six Park, who will be asking the questions listeners have sent in. Erica, thank you very much for joining us in this episode.
1: Thanks for having me. I don't think I've been in a podcast or on, on air since I was a journalism student, so it's good to be back in front of a microphone.
0: Well, I've only just started this podcast relatively recently too, so it's, it's, it's fairly new for me too. Erica has a background in rural and suburban newsrooms as well as for the Victorian Government as a Ministerial Policy Advisor. Six-part clients receive the weekly email which Erica sends out, which includes content on many aspects of investing, including the Women in Finance feature. Erica, can you please tell us a bit about that series?
1: Sure. So I've just recently started a Women's Finance Q&A series and the idea behind this is that um, women are not as engaged with their money typically as as men are and women are not as prominent in the financial services industry as men are Um, but that's not because we lack ability it's typically because we lack confidence so part of the reason for this series is to draw out um, some of the confidence that women in the industry have and hopefully help help other women build that confidence too
0: Uh, who have you had so far
1: uh, so the first interview with, was with Danielle Press, who's a former Equip Super CEO and has just joined ASIC as um, as a member of its board. Um, and the next interview coming up is with Miss Moneybox, um, Bronwyn Bruce, who um, who writes a, a great blog, Miss Moneybox, funnily enough, um, which is aimed at helping women with finance and investing.
0: If listeners would like to receive this weekly email, where can they subscribe to receive this free financial educational content?
1: So you can head to the Six Park website website www.sixpark.com.au and head right down to the bottom of the home page and there's um, an opportunity to sign up your email address there um, or shoot us a line at contact at sixpark.com.au and let us know and we can add you to
0: the list. All right great let's get on to the questions.
1: All right so the first question that we have is from Kate on Twitter and she'd like to know Ted how old you were when you started investing and what was your first investment?
0: Uh, I was about 17 and I'd just been drafted, actually I was probably 18, I'd just been drafted to the Essendon Football Club and um, fortunate enough to have the first few paychecks that um, came with being drafted. Uh, there's a line here that I remember, nothing fixes a thing so intensely in the memory as the wish to forget it. <laughs> and I say that because it wasn't a great investment. Um, I had noticed Bond's underwears becoming more and more prevalent. I think at the time, i just recently read Peter Lynch's book, One Up on Wall Street, and it's all about trying to notice things ahead of um, analysts and financial advisors and acting upon it. So I looked into Bonds Underwear, and I found out that it's owned by Pacific Brands. So I went out and bought some stock in Pacific Brands, which made sense to me at the time. But what I didn't realize is Bonds only produced a small amount of revenue for the Pacific Brands company. And even though my thinking was actually correct, that bonds uh, revenue was growing, it wasn't growing in that greater proportion. And um, the bigger businesses within Pacific Brands were going backwards. Sub- subsequently, the share price went backwards, and I sold at a, a fair loss. And uh, I made a very expensive lesson. Yeah.
1: It's um, it's it's something that we all have to learn, I guess, as investors, is that um Something doesn't necessarily stack up just because it looks good on paper yeah, um, or because you have a feeling about it. That doesn't necessarily make it really great idea either. It's, it's, a, it's a tough business.
0: I paid no interest at the time as to the valuation of the business, which is, is something that you can't overlook.
1: Now, our second question comes from Lou on Facebook, um, who's interested in what the common investing mistakes that people make are.
0: Well, I think from my perspective, the main two mistakes I've seen is, first of all, people confusing investing and speculating. Uh, So for example, a multi with your mates, uh, some cryptocurrency that deep down you know nothing about, or some small cap gold miner that you've heard about on Sky Business and you don't know anything about mining. That's not really investing, that's speculating. So it's probably more akin to gambling. The other mistakes are behavioral mistakes. And a lot of these mistakes come back to the study of behavioral economics, which I love. Um, I'm pretty excited because I've recently been accepted to do a course on behavioral economics at, at Harvard, which I'm um, yeah really excited about. i head off um, shortly. And um, behavioral economics is important as how you think and act with your investments will have the greatest influence in your ability to achieve returns. So knowledge of these behavioral mis- mistakes won't stop you from making these. They'll just give you a better chance So for example, just because I'm aware of them doesn't mean that I'm immune to these. These biases still affect me, you, and everyone. So let's go through some of them. Uh, One of which is anchoring. Uh, I know I get anchored to a price that has absolutely no meaning to the market, nor anyone except myself, and it's quite often that price that I'm anchored to is the price that I paid for it. Um, another, Another bias people have is recency bias. More often than not, we sign up, invest for the long term, but we assess performance monthly and sometimes even daily or even even hourly. You know that there will be volatility and corrections and crashes, but as soon as as soon as volatility hits, it really is hard to stay calm. Another bias we have is the endowment effect. And what I mean by that is we often overvalue something we own. I was very lucky enough to buy a property when I was playing football, but I am aware of the endowment effect means that I probably think that that property is worth more than it probably is. And I think the resale value of my old Volkswagen Tiguan is probably worth more than it uh, it really is too. (laughs) Just a couple more. Loss aversion is the aversion of making a loss um, because of um, how much that hurts you compared to the potential gains that you might make. And I know this gets me too. Um, I was thinking about this the other day because I actually think grand final losses hurt more than the exhilaration of of winning a grand final. And with regards to investing, I think loss aversion can inhibit people from taking that first step because they are worried about losing money. And the the last one, which I'll I'll mention, is um, confirmation bias. And I I think we're all guilty of this. Uh, What I mean by this is we put the conclusion first and then we search for the evidence to support that conclusion. In investing, you might think you're a good stock picker, and you look for the stocks that went up to support your thinking. The stocks you were successful on, you probably attribute to skill, and the ones you're unsuccessful on, you probably attribute to being unlucky. But it's it's really it's quite hard to differentiate like from skill. Confirmation and bias is pretty prevalent in politics too, where people will search for articles and news that confirms their own thinking. You may think that I was a bad footballer, but um, to be fair, there's probably plenty of evidence to p- support that thinking though <laughs> so erica, I know that you're you're a big fan of behavioral economics too, and you you're probably aware of your own biases too. How have you noticed that they these affect you
1: yeah look i've I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently because i've been Investing through Six Park for about 12 months now, a bit, bit over 12 months. Um, and that's my first sort of direct exposure to investing. I've obviously got my superannuation, but most of us don't think about that as an investment, strangely enough. Um, and certainly uh, in the first few months of being an investor, I checked my balance almost every day, um, and I was really interested in seeing how it was going up and down, which asset classes were, were performing well or not performing well, and really being super engaged with it. Um, and that probably led me to want to top up the account more because, you know, particularly when it was growing, it makes you want to add more and get more of that growth. Um, but also learning along the way and helping communicate along the way those those biases. And um, and and in February when we had the market correction of around ten percent. Um, knowing that that was on the brink of happening um, was a really good thing and knowing that my instinct would be you know to feel terrified when I opened my account and saw that my that my balance was down not by that full 10 percent because it's diversified and it wasn't the, the entire amount but you know it was in the red for a significant amount compared with what I was used to and just being prepared for that feeling and knowing that the safe course of action was to just let it go. Um, and sure enough, you know, within a few weeks, it was it was a very short frame of time um, to recover those losses, but it was probably my first real experience of, you know, being aware of that bias and being able to avoid it, which was a good thing. <laughs> now, if we could move on now, we've got a question from Bobby on Twitter, um, who is Uh, aware that they're straying into barefoot investor territory but wants to know how young's too young to have a formal wealth creation plan and how do you do that with robo advice
0: it's an interesting question and uh, the pineapple effect is a really good podcast on this topic and um, regarding pocket money too for young kids erica do your kids get pocket money
1: they don't at the moment Um, my kids are eight and four and my eight-year-old's got a few friends who have pocket money, but we haven't gone down that path yet. Um, there are jobs that he has to do every week, um, and then there's odd opportunities to earn a bit of extra cash, which he's squirrelling away for a Lego set that he desperately wants at the moment. But um, I think that for us at, oh, the good <laughs> at the moment, it's kind of a baseline um, expectation around the jobs that, um, that need to be done as part of being part of a family. Um, and then I'm sort of starting to think about whether or not um, we might be looking at pocket money for rather than for jobs um, for extra homework or for you know linking linking money and achievement rather than money and work
0: well my kids are two and a half and ten months old no pocket money for them yet I I I think my son would probably eat the coins Now, the second part of the question, I'm obviously biased about robo advice because, with the benefits of robo advice, you can set and forget, which is fantastic for a long term strategy with uh, young kids uh, if you're investing for their future, and have the robo advisor team manage your own globally diversified investment portfolio for you for a minimal amount each year. So, by no means is this the only option, but I do disagree with the old mantra of buying a couple of blue chip shares and just set and forget is the world is moving too quickly right now for example it wasn't that long ago that the biggest companies in the world well in the U.S. were mining companies like Exxon banks like Citi and Wells Fargo and other companies like GE etc but if you look now the the biggest companies in the U.S. are Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google and these companies and um, so forecasting in 12 months time is hard hard enough. I've got no idea what the com- biggest companies in the world will be in 20 years' time. It's probably something we've never heard of. So that's that's why I think robot advice can be good, is it's set and forget for the end user, for the investor, but the investments are being looked after. So how would it work? Let's say you were very lucky to be able to put, say, $10,000 aside for your kids or your grandkids. At $10,000, a roboadvisor. advisor could manage that for you and execute all the trades for you for a total fee of $50 per year. Invest $10,000 for a child at birth, Um, got a few assumptions here, assuming 8% net return per year. On that child's 21st birthday, they'd have just over $50,000 and what a great head start in life for them, that's five times the initial investment. Another option is that is the same as what I just mentioned, But on top, you added, say, $50 per month to that too. So on their 21st birthday, their $10,000 gift at birth would have grown to just over $92,000. So that's more than nine times the initial, and almost double the um, $50,000 I mentioned before simply by adding $50 per month. So that's how you invest with robo advice, and part of the reason why robo advisors in the US are now managing over $14 billion, companies like uh, Betterment. Obviously, the earlier you start, the better, and uh, the best example of this is Warren Buffett, who didn't become a billionaire until he was 60, and now he's worth close to 90 billion. Thanks for the question, Bobby.
1: Um, on the topic of investing for kids, it's an, it's an article that I'm writing at the moment that oh, I'm looking great. forward to getting out in the, in the next few weeks because it's something that we get a lot of questions about. So
0: Another reason to subscribe.
1: <laughs> now, Woody from Facebook is interested in knowing how many sports stars earning good money end up in financial difficulty after, after they retire from your experience and whether there was a financial education system in place to try to help that prevent that from happening.
0: Good question, Woody, and I I often get asked this, but the the first thing I want to say is this isn't just relevant to sports stars. As I did read the other day that Rihanna nearly went broke from uh, overspending and sued her financial advisor for doing so. Um, Morgan Housel wrote a great piece the other day that I read, and uh, I really liked it. In it, he mentions that most people say they want to be a millionaire, but what they really mean is that they want to spend a million dollars, and that's probably the opposite of being a millionaire. And I think sports stars can fall into this trap. So if, let's, let's have a look at the stats um, from a study in 2009 that I read. It found that two years after retirement, 80% of NFL players were broke. For the basketballers in the NBA, five years after retirement, 60% uh, were broke. This is incredibly sad. Um, well done to the basketballers for a slightly um, less proportion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think if we can get them a pat on the back for that. Um, So that's the numbers. And um, what I mentioned earlier, I think people wrongly think that rich people spend money, but rich people are often rich because they don't spend. And I I think that the people with the flashy cars are often fake rich, if that's even a saying. They've probably just got huge debt. I sat on the board of the AFL Players Association for a few years, and I'm proud that in the AFL, we don't have the numbers of financial hardship that the American sports have, but we're not immune. Um, Players do fall on hard times, and despite being well-paid, AFL players do get financial education, but I think that only gets you so far. The onus is on the individual to be able to balance that want versus need at the right time and to defer immediate gratification that a new flashy car might bring, defer those benefits for um, future gratification. So I hope that answers your question.
1: I seem to recall you telling me that uh, you drove a pretty dodgy car while you were a footy player for a long time.
0: In my last year, after playing 16 years of AFL, I was very proud to say that I drove an old Toyota Corolla, um, which I kept a lot of grief for because it... as, as my teammates would tell me, it stuck out like a sore thumb in the, the player car park. But um, it, it, it got me to training, albeit just. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Oh,
1: <laughs> now, Jacob um, sent us an email and his question is about staying informed around the macro situations that can affect ETFs and markets from a broad level. Um, and he says that he finds a lot of the material out there is either too basic or too micro.
0: Yeah, well, um, I get the impression that Jacob is actually quite well-read. I reckon yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's great advice from uh, Warren Buffett that I like, and, and um, his advice to, to young people is to read everything and start young. So um, I actually don't know how J- old Jacob is, but um, uh, well done. The obvious answer is to read the business sections of the papers, in particular the Financial Review and the Australian, but I think Jacob probably knows this. If you want something more, I, I recommend The the Economist. All the people I know that read The Economist are all really smart, but it, it's, it can be a tough read. It's not the most enjoyable, and um, full disclosure, I don't read it regularly, so I'm, I don't wanna try and put myself on some pedestal there. Two alternative sources of macro news that I kind of quite like, because they're um, quite entertaining, but they're certainly not traditional, is John Oliver's Last Week Tonight, which I I can, I'll put it in the macro category because it gives you some great news, um, what's happening in the US. And um, Freakonomics have some really good podcasts. They did a, a recent one on the issue with inflation in Venezuela, which um, was, um, it was not only educational, but it was fascinating too. Apart from that, six part put out monthly performance reports, which always touches on the macro themes for each asset class that we invest in. And what has affected the the prices over the prior month? Eric, um, when is our next investment committee update going out? Too
1: I'd say to expect it probably at the end of this month, um, hopefully, um, or early in the next month. The committee meets um, regularly, so we'll be looking forward to getting out some of the insights that come
0: out of that meeting. Okay. I've
1: got a question on what the best investing podcast shows or episodes that you've listened to are?
0: All right. My favourite podcasts are pretty much always investing podcasts. So um, I know that people love their detective and criminal stories, but each to their own. That, that's not me. But I, I do know that they're very popular. My wife loves them. There's probably half a dozen podcasts I like, which um, for whatever reason, they're mostly American. Um, I really like episodes when my favourite podcast overlaps with another. And what I mean by that is when one, the host of one show interviews the host of another. Um, so there's an episode where Barry Ritholtz from Masters in Business, who, by the way, um, Barry's awesome, uh, when Barry interviews Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who has his own show, Invest Like the Best. So having those two together, it's it's really interesting. Patrick's probably the same age as me, um, and he, he has a book out that I really want to read called Millennial Money. That episode was back in mid-January 2015, so... Um, we're going back three and a half years ago, but it, I really think it's quite timeless. Really interesting episode. Another podcast I like is Animal Spirits with Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, which, which is great. Yeah, the most recent episode's probably as good as any. It, it can get a bit more technical and a bit more about current events, so it probably doesn't, it's probably not as timeless as um, Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz. On a side note, Michael Batnick has got a really good book out right now. Uh, on the Best Investors and the Worst Mistakes, which I, I recently re- read and um, was really interesting. Uh, the third podcast I'd like to mention is Freakonomics Radio, in particular the episode where they did The Stupidest Thing You Can Do With Your Money, which is a, uh, a fantastic subject title, but also a, a great episode. Uh, in that episode, they do some great interviews with Jack Bogle, who was the fang- founder of Vanguard, uh, it gives us a bit of background on how and why ETFs are disrupting the wealth industry. Uh, that episode came out in March of 2018.
1: Freakonomics does some great stuff. They just deliver um, content in really innovative ways and make it very relatable, which yes. is such a talent in that sort of subject area.
0: Yeah. Uh, I've mentioned Masters in Business, so, but the particular episode that I'd like to mention... Another episode I'd like to mention is uh, the one that they did with Howard Marks. Once again, this is Barry Ritholtz and he interviews Howard Marks, who is one of the best and I really admire them. Howard Marks has also got a book called The Most Important Thing, which is which is great. Anyway, with this episode, it's from about 14 minutes onwards. Uh, get ready for the knowledge bombs that Howard Marks just drops one after another. Really like this episode. I, I can't remember the date, but it was uh, quite a while ago. Probably go back a few years for that. Um, the Pineapple Project is a you know it's a it's a really great light-hearted podcast. It's albeit a little bit more basic than the other ones I've mentioned, but if you're just wanting to get started in investing, I, I recommend checking this out. And it's hosted by Aussie comedian Claire Hooper, who does a fantastic job. And um, it's really got grown exponentially for for the obvious reason is is that uh, it's so relatable. I guess.
1: Yeah, it's the kind of topics that every household sort of deals with, whether it's, you know, how to reduce your debt or how to deal with pocket money, as we mentioned earlier. They're just, they're things that everyone talks about or agonises about, as the case may be.
0: I think there's even one about how to pay for a wedding. And there's someone that got married five years ago. I I can remember having the same discussions as uh, (laughs) as what she mentions. But um, Honourable Mentions uh, to Capital Allocators by Ted Sides, And I only just realised this the other day, but Ted Sides was the guy on the other side of the bet, the famous bet to to Buffett, who lost the million. Uh, There's a little fun fact for you there. What else? Uh, Shout out to the guys at Equity Mates. Those guys do a great podcast. And I like the episodes of We Study Billionaires where Preston and Stig do the book reviews. Uh, But I'll I'll have all these... um, all these links on the show notes on the Six Park website. So uh,
1: question from me though, um, how do you think your podcast compares to these ones? Uh,
0: that, that's, a, that's a very good question. I, Erica, I'm uh, I'm a former footballer that is uh, new to podcasting. I'm, I'm learning as I go. I edit these up myself and I think, well, I hope I'm improving. Some of these podcasts are pretty impressive. Malcolm Gladwell's podcast is, well, apart from the fact that it's awesome, it is so well produced and even the Pineapple Project is is really well put together too. Uh, my podcast is pretty raw. I think you probably heard someone slam a door in the background then. So um, apologies, but no special effects in this. But, <laughs> but uh, I, I, um, the feedback I've got is um, is pretty good.
1: Now, we've got a question from Nonna Rose on Twitter. Um, what's the greatest hurdle in transitioning from footy to your career now? And the second part of the question and that is do you think that others who changed their careers so dramatically face the same challenges or do you think that they're unique to sports people
0: uh, good two questions not a Uh so the two parts to this um, transitioning to you from football career to your my career right now I, I think the first part is I used to play full back so it's, it's it's quite refreshing these days to not have to worry about full forwards kicking bags of goals on me each week uh, that's 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 one, but the, the obvious thing is that I'm, I'm at a desk for most of the day now. I'm far more stationary. I'm lucky in that I love what I do. I'm no longer paid to go to the gym each week, but <laughs> I, I think I think better when I'm active. So I keep, still keep relatively active, um, but by no means am I a professional athlete. Um, what I do miss, I do miss that feeling after a win and celebrating it with teammates, um, that, that was a great feeling that those 10 minutes after a, a, a win the only thing that really kind of comes close to that now is when my wife and I get the kids to sleep early and um, they sleep through the night they're, they're they're great wins
1: oh I can relate to that one so much <laughs> that's a, that's a huge moment and what about part two which is looking at um, whether or not other people who change their careers in this big way face the same kind of challenges
0: yeah it, and that's I think eventually disruption will affect everyone. So I think changing careers will probably become more common. Um, There's a Japanese word to describe this called mujo, which I can remember, which means impermanence. Disruption is definitely having more of an immediate effect on some careers over others. So as with many things in life, it it won't be fair. Uh, So if you look at car manufacturing, um, in Australia, which has been heavily disrupted. So you've got Ford in Geelong, which have closed down, and, and Holden um, in Elizabeth is in South Australia. These industries closed down because of manufacturing in places like Thailand, where people are assembly, assembling cars on $6 per hour and increasingly robots you know, operating on nothing but the cost of electricity. So it's hard for me to generalize on this as everyone has their own skill and their own passions and interests. Um, Yes, footballers are paid much more, but there are some similarities there, and and that's finding the life skills you learn in one career, thinking ahead, making necessary sacrifices and um, applying it to your next career. I can see that many journalists um, are pivoting from purely writing articles for newspapers to complementary skill sets of producing more video content, content and podcasts, which is possibly where the eyes and ears are going now. Erica, you used to work at newspapers... Would this be a fair comment?
1: Absolutely. And media is another industry that's being heavily disrupted, um, partly. Uh, because of uh, outsourcing, but also because um, users are generating so much content. Newspapers don't have to pay professional journalists to gather news and facts. You know, you can go onto Facebook and Twitter and have people who are eyes and ears on a scene who are happy to share their photos and their experiences. And so it, it's changed the complexion of news significantly. But um, And I do think that people who have those complementary skills... Um, in, in social media, in video, in, um, in those kinds of areas are definitely going to have an advantage as, as things continue because Print, print media as, as a medium is, um, is not going to be around much longer, realistically. It's, um, it's sad for me, but, but true. <laughs> now, I've got another question from More Money um, in Perth, and that's, do you think that financial literacy should be taught at school or before undertaking large debt commitments?
0: Yeah, good question. More money. More money. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, credit is getting easier, and with that, the potential damage that young people can inflict upon themselves is getting worse. It can significantly affect their stress levels and even looking over the long term, their retirement would be affected too as people not starting their savings journey early enough. So I I certainly agree, it's important to have the, the conversations in school as money smarts and budgeting is a fantastic life skill to have. And more money also mentioned the large debt commitments And i had a question around that. And I think having a basic understanding of the dangers of debt and the importance of shopping around for a mortgage is important as it It can save you tens of thousands of dollars in life. So um, and I've actually had a look at their website and um, uh, it it looks quite interesting. So check it out, Um, moremoney.com. So M-A-W-E-R-M-O-N-E-Y.com. Yeah, check it out.
1: Now we've got another question from Kieran O'Gorman on Twitter, which is, what some of the major differences are between a stockbroker and an online app or trading platform?
0: Yeah, good question, Kieran. It's it's hard for me to generalise as stockbrokers will all have their own investment philosophy. Some are quite passive with their investment recommendations and others are actually the antithesis to that. And they're very active and out trading for clients every day and charging a fair sum to do so. So traditionally, stockbrokers recommend individual companies or stocks and pass on the costs to clients to do the trades for them. Whereas most robo-advisors I know actually absorb the trading fees, so clients don't pay for that. Most robo-advisors also invest in index funds, so they're not always trying to pick individual stocks. That's probably the main difference, but I I could go on.
1: Now, Matt on Twitter is asking about how often the investment committee at Six Park meets and whether or not there are automatic triggers to adjust our asset exposures.
0: Yeah. Hi, Matt. Yes, our investment committee meets monthly and for unique events, they meet when required to. So for example, an event like Brexit, um, Trump, well any Trump event, (laughs) Um, and more recently, the volatility in February, which we mentioned earlier uh, this year. Um, They'll meet and we'll have communication out to clients there and then. And we also have automatic triggers that will flag when a portfolio needs to be rebalanced and when that should occur. Our system also has a human overlay that needs to approve this rebalance. Sometimes dividends might be coming in or the client might be dollar cost averaging by adding a certain amount of money each month, and this is taken into account. So we try not to overtrade clients or create any um, unnecessary tax events.
1: Now we've got an anonymous question from Facebook Messenger. Um, I've thought about transition to a finance role. Can you talk about what courses are best to do this? the best and worst things about working in finance and interested in how you see the role of robo-advice versus a face-to-face advisor?
0: Yeah, quite a few questions there, so I'll I'll do my best to answer them. Um, I I consider myself new to the finance world, um, but this Royal Commission is certainly providing a shake-up to the industry, um, albeit a necessary shake-up. Most of the big banks are all getting out of wealth now, so who knows what the industry will look like in 5 to 10 years. Uh, I love working in finance and investing as it's competitive and there's new challenges and opportunities every day. And without getting too romantic, I I really enjoy helping people invest to improve the future quality of their life. Um, Another part of your question, um, how do I see the role of human advisor compared to a robo-advisor? Well, I don't necessarily think it's binary. You don't have to select either a financial advisor or only a robo-advisor as... um, in the U.S., it's it's common for advisors and robo-advisors to work side by side, so much so that every major American bank in the U.S. now has their own robo-advisor too. So banks like JP Morgan, UBS, Morgan Stanley, all these banks in the U.S. have their own robo-advisors too, and their own financial advisors. The robo-advisor provides the investment management side, and the human advisor can provide advice around their retirement planning, estate planning, etc. Robo advice can also be beneficial for people without an investment size that's big enough for a human advisor to consider them a worthwhile client. So, by automating your investment strategy through Robo advice, it, it helps investors avoid the biases I, I mentioned earlier around recency bias, anchoring, and even um, home country bias investing, too. It does this by making your strategy as automatic as possible and removing that emotion, which can get you into trouble. So I hope I answered your question There, That's it from me. Erica, what's coming out next week for Six Park subscribers?
1: Uh, Next week, you're likely to be getting a performance report and we'll also have uh, our Q&A with Bronwyn Bruce from Miss Moneybox coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, and all of our new clients in September are going into the draw to win a $1,000 voucher for a red balloon.
0: Oh, great. Fantastic. Well, that's it from Erica and I. Erica, thank you very much for joining us for this episode and helping out. Apologies if we didn't get to answer your question. Uh, this time, Erica, I think we really should do this again. Sounds like fun. Good luck to your footy teams if they're still standing. And if they're not, good luck at the trade table. See you next time on The Richards Report.